Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to gather as a church to sit under the teaching of your word. We thank you that your word was not only spoken, but also incarnate through your son, Jesus Christ. And now that we have it recorded in words, sentences, phrases, and paragraphs, we pray that your spirit would help us to be able to understand these truths so that we might be able to apply them in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard of the term selfie risk? I actually never heard of the term until I read a recent article. Tina Choi, who works in media promotion, says that a successful selfie can raise the notice of her clients. More notice means more income. She says that selfies are a way of sharing a sense of yourself, sharing a story. But all this selfie taking also has a cost. It began to cause some tingling in her fingers and also in her wrist. The tingling became a discomfort and then a pain. It eventually became so severe that it prevented her from actually working. Selfie wrist. An orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Levi Harrison, says that it's a form of carpal tunnel. The selfie wrist occurs when patients constantly hyperflex their wrist inwards in order to capture that perfect selfie. Do you struggle with selfie wrist? Now, many of you may be thinking, I've never taken a selfie in my life, but I'm asking you, do you struggle with wanting to be noticed so that you could become great? Some people live for the likes, the emoji response, the comments, but do you struggle with the desire to be noticed in your workplace? Do you desire to be noticed for the projects that you finish? Do you struggle with the desire to hear your, your children say, Mom and Dad, you did such a wonderful job in raising me as a child. Do you desire to be noticed so that you can become great? Everyone wishes to become great. Everybody wants to be great because they want to become noticed. High school football players design greatness. They train hard so that when high school scouts come to watch their games, they're able to perform. Students desiring a great career study hard, pursue internships, participate in extracurricular activities, and do research to be noticed. To be noticed by those companies, by those grad schools, by those dental schools, medical schools, and the list goes on. The wanting to be a social media star, to work hard and to be great by spending those countless hours perfecting that photo or that clip so that people can like it. And those who are desiring that corner office by taking on more projects to be noticed. And those of you who are retired maybe wonder, is my time for greatness over? Because no one ever notices me anymore. And everyone wishes to be great. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be mediocre. I want to be unnoticed. I want to be a nobody. Everyone desires to be noticed. Everyone desires to be great. Yet as Christians, we ask ourselves, what does it really mean to be great? What is the path of greatness for God's people? Is it about being noticed? Is it about being hidden? What is the path to greatness for God's people. To answer this question, we're going to eavesdrop 
on a conversation between Jesus and the disciples as they journey to Jerusalem. Now, as the disciples accompanied Jesus on this way to Jerusalem, Jesus actually tells them that he's going to die and rise three days later, three times. This conversation occurs three times. So the first time Jesus shares this, Peter takes Jesus aside and says, Jesus, you really got to stop saying this dying thing. You know, we already have a limited number of followers as it is. If you keep on talking about death, we're going to have less and less people following us. And then Peter responds saying, you are an instrument of Satan. Get behind me. Now, when Jesus predicts his death and resurrection for the second time, the disciples respond by gathering together and asking themselves, okay, so Jesus is going to become king, but then who's going to be his right hand man? Among us disciples, who is the greatest? And then when Jesus asks them, so what are you guys talking about? They keep quiet like children caught with their hand in the cookie jar. And since Jesus is God, he already knew that they were thinking about this. And he teaches them the greatest in the kingdom is the one who receives someone that is little mature, least mature, like a child. And they journey on some more before we arrive to the third time that Jesus shares about his death and resurrection. And the disciples, in terms of their understanding, they already struck out twice. And so let's see this third time. How did the disciples respond after Jesus shares with them again about his death and resurrection? This conversation is found in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. So please turn there with me if you have your Bibles. Mark chapter 10. Now, from this conversation with his disciples, we'll learn three things. First, what is the world's path to greatness? And second, what is God's path to greatness? And then third, why should we follow God's path to greatness? So first, what is the world's path to greatness? The world's path to greatness is about self-promotion. You have to look out for opportunities to demonstrate your prowess, your skills, your gusto, and you take those opportunities as they come. You make yourself known. You put yourself on that radar. And the world's path to greatness is about self-promotion. Now, the disciples believe that God's path to greatness mirrored the world's path to greatness. I mean, they've heard about it all their lives. Soldiers who go off into battle, coming back, telling stories of their victories. They hear whispers of intrigue in regards to Herod and how he maneuvered himself to the top. And if the disciples desired greatness in God's kingdom, then they'd have to get after it. And so James and John's desire for greatness led to their self-promotion. When they heard from Jesus, we are going to Jerusalem, they may have thought to themselves, it's time. Jesus, our teacher, our messianic king, will claim his Davidic throne in Jerusalem. His enemies will be his footstool. And before it's too late, we have to ask Jesus for those prominent positions in his kingdom. And what would give these two men the audacity to ask for such prominent positions? They were the sons of Zebedee. They were heirs to a fishing business in Galilee. When Jesus called them to follow him, they left their fishing nets to hired hands and they took after Jesus. They had bigger fish to fry. They were no longer fisher of fish, but fisher of men. 
And as they followed Jesus, Jesus invited them to the most intimate moments of his ministry. When Jesus raised Jairus's daughter from the dead, they were there. When Jesus went up the Mount of Transfiguration, James and John stood there amazed at the sight of their rabbi teacher in his divine glory with Elijah and Moses beside him. Jesus even had a nickname for them, the Sons of Thunder. And they would defend this coveted position as members of Jesus's inner circle. John told a person who was casting out a demon in the name of Jesus to stop, to desist. Only disciples could do that. But Jesus rebukes John and says, if they're not for us or if they're not against us, then they're for us. James and John's self-promotion shouldn't really surprise us. Uh, Look with me at verse 35. It says this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Did you hear how James and John were trying to promote themselves? They asked for the right and left hand seats in Jesus's coming administration. They wanted him to appoint one of them to be his vice president and the other to be his secretary of state. They attributed positions with greatness. Now, Jesus attempts to correct James and John's misunderstanding of greatness. He tries to warn them that the path to greatness is not paved with power or with glory. The path of greatness actually involves much suffering. Read with me Jesus' words in verse 38. It says this, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So what is Jesus talking about with this cup and with this baptism? Well, Jesus refers to this cup two more times in the gospel of Mark. First, he refers to it when he institutes the Lord's Supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then the second time that Jesus mentions the cup is when he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's asking the father, please, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And so when the cup is referred to in the gospel of Mark, it's actually referring to the cup of God's divine wrath. And that's the picture that's also picked up in the old Testament that this cup of God's divine wrath is to be poured out on his enemies And yet, instead of God's wrath being poured out on us, the rebels, God's enemies, God pours out that cup on Christ. Now, what does Jesus mean by baptism? Well, the word baptize is taken from the context of dyeing cloth. A craftsman would submerge a piece of white cloth in purple dye and then remove it, and then it'd be purple. But the focus isn't on the dyeing but it's on the submerging. The Old Testament prophets oftentimes use this picture of being submerged underwater to depict suffering. So again, this baptism is symbolizing the suffering that Jesus will experience. This is also probably why we practice immersion in our baptisms at HCC, so that we demonstrate our identification with Christ's death and resurrection. 
That's why we practice baptism by immersion. Now, in essence, Jesus is asking James and John, are you willing to suffer on the behalf of others? And the response is in verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. Now, for some reason, my mind compares James and John to kind of kids who are requesting a pet dog. And a parent explains the responsibilities of raising a dog. You need to walk it. You need to feed it. You need to wash it. You need to clean up after it. And the children say, we are able, we can do it. But the parent knows at the back of their mind, I'm going to be doing all the washing, the feeding, the walking and cleaning. But anyway, Jesus continues in verse 39 and he says this. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Now, Jesus is actually essentially saying to James and John, you both indeed will suffer as you pursue greatness. But as for these positions of prominence, on the right and left hand it is only for God, the father to grant for he alone knows who sits there. And both James and John do end up suffering for their faith. James is considered the first apostle martyred in Acts chapter 12, verse one. And then John spends most of his elder years in exile on the Island of Patmos. Now we discover that it's not just James and John who are trying to pursue greatness according to the world's schemes. The disciples feel upset by their failure to promote themselves, especially before James and John. They may have thought to themselves, man, why didn't we ask Jesus for those positions of promise? Why didn't we ask him for those cabinet positions? And it's always James and John trying to get ahead of us. And verse 41 describes the argument here. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were upset that these sons of thunder would have had the audacity to seek prominence. And it shows us that the disciples still don't really understand how God's kingdom works. They still operated according to the world's practices. Now, don't we find ourselves doing the same things? The way of the world influences our pursuit of greatness more so than the way of God. We seek promotion by taking on those projects that no one else takes so that we can be recognized. We may even serve other people at church so that we can be applauded and approved and praised. And as we get older, we wonder, is society going to discard us because I'm no longer useful? No company wants to hire me. And even at church, there are new upcoming leaders. Where am I to serve? Is my time over? And the world makes us think that if we don't do anything to promote ourselves, if we have no usefulness, no utility, then we won't be noticed and we'll be left behind. We'll be tossed aside like yesterday's rubbish. But what is God's path to greatness? Well, God's path to greatness is service to others. You serve others not to be noticed. You help others to be conformed into the image of God, not so that you would get credit. You aid those who can't return a favor. God's path to greatness requires service to others. 
Like a parent breaking up an argument between siblings, Jesus intervenes before the disciples decide to duke it out for those positions of promise or prominence in the kingdom. Jesus teaches them that God's path to greatness deferred from the world's path to greatness. The world says you must bite, scratch, and claw your way to prominence. But God says otherwise. All the disciples needed to learn in terms of about the world's practices, in terms of achieving greatness, was to reach into their back pocket and to pick out and to fish out a denarius. And the face of a denarius would have depicted the face of the emperor Augustus, who consolidated power and worked his way to the top to become emperor. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. But that's not the way of God. Verse 42 says this. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. That was verse 41. And verse 42, it says this. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, Jesus uses two metaphors to describe service. First, you must be a servant. This is the Greek word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. Now, before you think this isn't so bad, I mean, deacons serve on our church council. They make all the big decisions. The word deacon in the first century actually referred to waitstaff. It was the waiter, the busboy at the restaurant. And if you want to be great in God's kingdom, then learn what it means to be a waiter, to be a busboy. And second, the other metaphor that Jesus uses is the metaphor of a slave. As a waitstaff, you at least receive payment for your services, but then as a slave, you render service without payment, and you do whatever your master asks of you. Whatever he or she wants, you do. And are you willing to say to others, I serve at your pleasure? The path to greatness for Christ's followers is paved with service. When I say service, I don't mean reciprocated service. If you do something, if I do something for you, then you do something for me. If I serve you, then at least I get a thank you. Or do I expect from God a greater reward because I serve more faithfully at my church than my neighbor, the person sitting next to me? We serve without expectation of receiving a return. If we desire greatness in God's kingdom, then we must learn to serve. Now, why should we actually follow God's path to greatness? And why should we serve others? Well, we serve others because Christ served us. The example of Christ motivates us to serve. He also shows us what does it look like to serve? All our service finds its roots in what Christ has done for us. Serve others because Christ served us. Look with me at verse 45. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus doesn't call himself a rabbi. He uses the title 
son of man. And this title invokes an image from Daniel 7, where he sees God give all power, dominion, and authority to one who is like the son of man. In other words, the king, the master, the ruler has come. And instead of coming to dominate, he came to serve. Jesus served us though he was our master. Jesus used his power to serve rather than to dominate. The one who was there when God the Father spoke creation into existence entered into the world as a man. He who walked on water walked beside people. He who had the power to heal and to remove illness, he experienced pain. He who deserved to have a palace built for him instead spent time building other people's homes as a carpenter. He who deserved others to wash his feet, he washed the feet of others. But his biggest act of service was giving his life as a ransom for us. A ransom is the price that someone would pay in order to purchase a slave. In the Old Testament, God is depicted as the Redeemer, as the one who saved Israel from Egyptian slavery. He had purchased them. He had bought them. He had paid their ransom. And like Israel, we are not under the slavery of an earthly master, but we are under the mastery of sin. And we desire to live according to our design, our plan, our way, rather than God's design. We do whatever pleases us because if we don't look after ourselves, no one else will look after us. That's why some of us hoard things because we try to prepare for every other contingency that we might think of because no one will look out for us unless we have those items that are needed in order to survive. We cut ourselves off from people because we don't want to be hurt. We lie about our accomplishments so that we might be accepted. Yet all these activities done over a long period of time will lead to despair. And the cost of such sin is ultimately death. And it would be right for God the King to demand death for rebellion. But instead of dying, instead of us dying, our master died in our place. He paid the price for our sin so that we could be free. Jesus served us, though we were undeserving. So what do we need to do? We need to imitate our master, especially as we serve others. Imitate the master as you serve people. Use your power and your influence to help others. Just as Jesus used his resources to aid those in need, we are to do the same. Ask those who work for you, how can I help you flourish in your job? Ask your employer or your boss, what can I do to make your job easier? As a student, use your knowledge of a subject to help your classmates offer to read perhaps a classmate's college essay. Study with them for exams. And as grandparents, ask your children, how can I support you? How can I help you with the kids? How can I support you during this time? And parents, ask your kids, what would you like mom and dad to do more of or even less of? And children, ask your parents, how can I help around the house? Use your power and your influence to help others because Christ 
used his power and influence to help us. And also help those who you think are undeserving. None of us deserve the salvation that Christ offered at the cross. We deserve only to experience God's wrath and his punishment. Yet Christ helped us when we didn't deserve it. So shouldn't we do likewise? Now, earlier in Mark, Jesus says that one who receives a child receives me. Children really can't repay you much for their service. Infants eat and sleep. They don't say, thank you for feeding me. Thank you for playing with me. Thank you for cleaning me. Yet as a parent, you care for them. And as a church, we also have a responsibility to care for children as well and to come alongside families to help them shepherd their kids. We're not even just talking about young kids, but even our youth. Instead of outsourcing the spiritual formation of our youth to youth volunteers, we should ask ourselves as parents, how can we support the youth ministry as they help our youth spiritually grow? But we're just not talking about physiological children or youth, but we're also talking about spiritual infants. As believers, we're called to care for our brother and sister in Christ, especially when they are in need. They may be growing, but they may need help understanding different concepts, whether it be the gospel or the story of the Bible. It could be a brother or sister really struggling to follow Christ. And we are called to serve them and to care for them. We listen to them as they process their life, their joys and their tragedies, even though they may not express thanks. We're called to care for those who are difficult to care for because Christ cared for us even though we were undeserving. So what is God's path to greatness? Well, God's path to greatness is service to others. So serve others because Christ served us. A Latin American theologian, Rene Padilla, remembers one of his early encounters with the theologian, John Stott. He puts it this way. On the previous night, we had arrived in Bariloche, Argentina in the middle of heavy rain. The street was muddy. And as a result, by the time we got to the room that had been assigned to us, our shoes were covered with mud. And in the morning, when I woke up, I heard the sound of a brush. John was busy brushing my shoes. John, I exclaimed full of surprise. What are you doing? My dear Renee, he responded, Jesus taught us to wash each other's feet. You don't need me to wash your feet, but I can brush your shoes. Would we find ourselves with the same mindset as John Stott, who modeled Christ in his service by brushing a brother's shoe? May we model the master who served us in our service to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of the gospel that says we do not need to be noticed because Christ, you noticed us. You saw us when we were undeserving of your salvation and you saved us. And so as we interact with people in our lives, whether it be in the workplace or at home or even in ministry, that we would model the service that Christ exemplified as we serve others, as we care for them as we listen to them, as we share the gospel with people. May we also exemplify that service of Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen.